You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Professor Ross Fitzgerald is a historian, novelist and political commentator. One of Australia's most prolific authors, he has published 43 books, which is all the more impressive when you consider that between the ages of 15 to 24, he was a chronic, dangerous alcoholic, heading towards an early grave. As of this recording, he has been sober for 53 years. So, Ross, welcome to Five of My Life. Welcome, welcome. We start on Five of My Life every time with uh, our guest's film, and you have chosen the charming 1991 film, Hear My Song. Tell me about that, mate. Well, it's uh, based on a true story about my father's favourite singer, the Irish tenor Joseph Locke, who, uh, after the VAT people were after him for tax, he shot through to Ireland. And a young English impresario found him and brought him back for one last remarkable performance. And the end of that movie is just so uplifting. And it also contains one of my favourite songs, Hear My Song and also Count My Blessings. Count your blessings one by one when day appears and night has just begun. Count your blessings while you may for we have little time to stay. Ah, is that a philosophy that you live by, mate? I do. I live a day at a time. And, and which is not irrelevant given your recent surgery. Yes, indeed. I've, I had open heart surgery and I was in hospital for about 10 weeks and I've felt very vulnerable after that, especially as I now live on my own when my darling wife Lyndall died on the 22nd of January 2020. Mm. Yeah. So I need to live a day at a time, sometimes an hour at a time. Now, you say it was your um, your dad's favourite, based on your dad's favourite song, is that right? Yes. Could you uh, tell us about your dad? Well, my dad <clears throat> was a very tough man who played football for Collingwood. Oh. He never read a book, as far as I know. In fact, the only book in our house was The Power of Positive Thinking, which as far as I could tell, remained unopened. Is that Norman Peel who wrote that? Yeah, Norman yeah. Vincent Peel, I think, it, yeah. yeah. But my father was also a very fine cricketer, and he was my great hero until I started to drink at 14. And as soon as I started drinking alcohol, he changed in my mind from a hero to a turd, and I gave him a terrible time. And I'm so pleased that my father and I got to know each other in the last two years of his life, when I was, when I just got sober, I was a couple of years sober, and unlike a lot of parents who are ashamed that their 
their their sons and daughters are in AA. He was very proud. He used to say, my boy's going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he'd bring workmates along. He never drank a teaspoonful because his father destroyed the family uh, and the business with his alcoholism. So my dad was an alcoholic who didn't drink. And he knew that if he picked up a drink, he'd end up like his father And he knew that if I, and I'm the only living child, if I picked up a drink, uh, I'd end up like his father. And indeed I did, but much, much worse. So so what an incredible foresight and strength of character for him never to start. Uh, And and why did you... uh, think he was a turd when you started drinking was that specifically because he wouldn't join in or because he was criticizing well, you? well because alcohol changed my thinking it radically changed my thinking now i don't regret drinking if i hadn't have started drinking a month after i turned 14 i would have suicided at 17 but if i hadn't have got released and that's a strange word for an atheist like myself but if i hadn't have got released from the need to drink alcohol and take other drugs at 25, I wouldn't have made 26. Well, so this is the the perfect link to your second choice on Five in My Life. I have have my copy uh, in my hand. Uh, You have chosen your book on Five in My Life is AA's Big Book, published in 1939. Uh, Tell us about that, Ross. Well, it was Alcoholics Anonymous that changed my life. As I said, I don't regret starting drinking but alcoholism is an illness and very soon it took control of me and I was rather like Lord Byron bad mad and dangerous to know I made suicide packs and drove cars off bridges and spent a lot of time in mental hospitals and had loads and loads of shock therapy and uh, I was a very damaged human being and a lot of thoughts entered my mind But there was one thought that never entered my mind for a second, and that was to do anything about my drinking. Right. And yet, if you added up the three... I mean, I got sacked from two universities here in Australia when you had to interfere with the Vice-Chancellor dog to get sacked, but they sacked me twice. I cried. I was a big crier. I finished up in America on a Fulbright scholarship based on my, my fluency in Russian, I can't say fart in Russian, but I was that insane I thought I could speak Russian and I couldn't and I can't. But in the three years that I was in America, in Cleveland, everyone assumed I was a Russian speaker. But in those three years, if you added up all the time I was in the one mental hospital, I was actually hospitalised for a year and a half, eight times. And uh, I remember a resident saying to me, Ross, have you ever thought of going to Alcoholics Anonymous? And I looked at him straight in the eye and I said, what's the point of going to AA? I can't stop drinking. Now, Nigel, I thought I was clever. I thought I was particularly clever that I paid for nothing, but I thought I was even more clever that within 24 hours of arriving anywhere, I'd find some lucky woman to look after me. They weren't Melbourne Cup winners. I wasn't big on quality. But they shared two things in common. They breathed it out and they all pissed off. And the one that lasted the longest was a woman called Rosemary. She wanted to marry me, as did a couple of others. There's a lot of mad people in the world. (laughs) But she shot through to Akron, Ohio, where AA began. And I wrote her this pathetic suicide note that said, Darling, 
if anything should happen to me, please don't feel it's all your fault. <laughs> now, as you know, I write comedy, but the sad thing was I meant it. But eventually I couldn't get any woman to look after me and I finished up living with an old boiler maker called Bill. And for a while we lived in the black ghettos in Cleveland and then we, we moved to Little Italy where only blacks got shot. It was a very violent time in Cleveland. And whatever little food we ate, he cooked. And I remember we cleaned our teeth once and vomited simultaneously. And I said to him, mate, we've got to stop this cleaning our teeth because every <laughs> time we clean our teeth, we get crook. <laughs> anyway, he was, he was away on a drinking jag. I'd heard the voices since I was about 16 or 17 but this was the first time the animals came at me and the ceiling came down and the walls moved in and these salivating Alsatian dogs were out to devour me. And I'm a living example, you can be drunk and terrified. And for the first time in my young life, a thought entered my head. Roscoe, it mightn't be a bad idea to do something about your drinking for a while. And instead of drinking some rot-gut wine and taking a handful of barbiturates, I took a handful of barbiturates. I waddled down because I was 16 and a half stone, not because I was eating a lot, but because all those barbs bloated me. And I went down to a bar where the Cleveland Browns used to drink. It was a noon to midnight bar. And the bartender used to let me come in and drink while he cleaned up the bar. He literally saved my life once before, six months before, in, uh, in New York. He used to come to see me in the mental hospitals. And I went in there and I said, Jimmy, I've decided to do something about my drinking. And he meant what he said. He said, fantastic news. And a half an hour later, I was back saying, for Christ's sake, give me a drink. And instead of a drink, he wrote down a phone number and said, get your ass out of here and ring this number. And it turned out to be the number of Alcoholics Anonymous in Cleveland. And I, I wasn't to know it then, but that was when my chance at living began. I finished up getting deported uh, uh, from America in 1969, shortly after the first, first person had walked on the moon. I remember I, I was alone in my hospital bed and one of the fellow patients came in and he said, Hey, Ozzy. The first man's about to walk on the moon. Do you know what I said? I said, who gives a fuck about that? Had Christ come down on a green watermelon, I would have said, who gives a fuck about that? But these days, <clears throat> if I see a little willy wagtail, and they're hard to find in Redfern now, or if I hear a magpie warbling, I get a great sense of joy. And I promise you there was no joy in my life. And so the reason that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is my favourite book is because I thought nobody was like me. And when I read that book, I saw all sorts of, all sorts of similarities and I was given hope. But I knew that AA worked, but I felt certain it wouldn't work for me. And that was because I never felt I deserved any good things in my life. I felt like a garbage tip as a child. And often a kind word can change a person's life. The last mental hospital I was in was at a place called Delmont in Melbourne. And the night before we were due to be discharged, 
we got taken to a big meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous at the Malvern Town Hall. And I came up to Antique Harry in tears and I said, Harry, do you ever think I'll get this thing? And instead of saying, no hope unless you get off the tablets, which is true, but not very helpful, Antique Harry looked at me and he said with great gentleness, he said, son, if you stay close to this movement, you'll be all right. And those words changed my life. Even then, I knew Harry couldn't have had faith in me. How could he? I was so damaged, not just by all the drugs and the alcohol, but all the shock therapy as well. What he had faith in, I came to realise, was regular attendance at meetings of AA that start on time and finish on time. And within that structure, we talk about what we used to be like, what happened and what we're like now. That's done something for me that all the money in this big city couldn't buy. Now, I was 52 years sober on Australia Day, January the 26th, um, 2022. That's fantastic, but it's finished. It's caught the train to Melbourne. What matters is what am I going to do from now on? And I'm a day-to-day proposition, and that's one of the reasons why I regularly go to AA The other reason I regularly go is you don't have to like me, but I'm a remarkable example of what AA can do to someone who is just so damaged. When I was on the piss, I thought I was a writer, and I didn't write a note to the milkman, and book number 44 has just come out. I I have it in my hand, and and I have to say, Ross, you are an utter inspiration, mate. Your story... Uh, of of no hope, you know, trying to commit suicide, being in mental. I mean, you you were uh, as as low as one can get, and yes. I'm looking at you now. You've written 44 books. You're a professor. You are you are well known, well respected, and your most recent book, which I have read cover to cover twice, uh, My Last Drink: 32 Stories of Recovering Alcoholics. You are going to have the effect that the big book had for you on people that you will never meet. Yes, I think that's true. You are going to change lives. I, I, as you know, I haven't had a drink for 21 years. Yeah. Uh, I, I wasn't as beaten teachable as, as you were, but I, yeah. same, same drama. It's a privilege to talk to you, and I cannot recommend this book more highly, uh, My Last Drink by Ross Fitzgerald. It's, it's utterly fantastic, mate, and it tells stories, yours and others, where lives are utterly ruined and wasted, but there is always hope. Yes, And hope uh, is a a tremendously strong emotion. And my sponsor in AA did something which was quite remarkable. In all the time we were together, he never criticised me once. And there's something about me that brings out criticism in others. And shortly before my darling wife and friend of 45 years, Lyndall, died in January 2020, she said to me, Do you know, Rossi, in all our time together, you have never criticised me once. And I think that's a great tribute to Alcoholics Anonymous. Wow. Wow. And did she criticise you? Oh, yes. <laughs> Before she died, she said to me, I know I'm often critical of you, Rossi, but I love you to bits. Oh. And she wasn't particularly tactile. And I, from time to time, I'd think she doesn't love me. Well, why would you stay with someone like me for 45 years if you didn't love them? Yeah. 
Oh, wow. We're going to come on to your third choice on Five My Life. Uh, and obviously, like all of the songs that our guests choose, we add it to the Five My Life Spotify playlist. Uh, you have chosen um, a song from Marion Faithful's seventh album, brilliant album, Broken English, in some ways a comeback album, uh, a song that originally was done by Dr. Hook, of all people, written by Shel Silverstein. It is the fantastic The Ballad of Lucy Jordan. At the age of 37, she realized she'd never ride through Paris in a sports car with the warm wind in her head. Released by Marianne in 1979. Uh, tell us about that, mate. Well, I just think it's one of the most powerful songs ever written and especially sung by Marianne Faithful, given her background as, uh, as an addict. I found it tremendously inspiring, even though it's about a woman committing suicide. And the timbre of her voice in that song, in that recording, just goes straight to my heart. And if an atheist can have a soul, straight to my soul. So the, the lyrics are uh, incredible about you sort of, you know, I mean, dull suburban life, basically, and a bored housewife, etc. It, it makes me want to ask about your, your varied career uh, uh, once you've found sobriety, but also your, your politics. I mean, you, you refer to me, which I find very endearing, as comrade. Yeah. And uh, would you mind talking about your your uh, your political journey your your membership with the communist party your 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 varied life because you couldn't have had a less similar than boring suburban life than anybody i know mate yes well i was never a member of the communist party ah. because when i was 15 uh, i went to meet an organizer outside the brighton mose match factory telling him i wanted to join i wasn't very drunk but i'd had a few drinks after school after about a minute, the organiser put his hand up and he said, I think you can do better elsewhere, son. And they didn't turn too many members down in the late 1950s, I can tell you. You were rejected by the Communist Party. And I wasn't turned down for any, relig uh, any ideological reason. It's just however desperate they were for members, they didn't want a young piss pot sort of gumming up the works. I suppose politically I'm an anarchist in, in the peaceful sense that I always have a go at whoever is in power. So people, some people think I'm left-wing, some people think that I'm right-wing. See, Tony Abbott's a good friend of mine. Right. And a lot of my lefty friends turned on me because of my friendship. But I'm... <laughs> my philosophy is... You deal with people as they deal with you. And Abbott was very, has been very kind to me. He was especially kind uh, to Lyndall when she was dying. And so was Alan Jones, for example. So um, I think politically I'm always against those who are in power. Yeah, wow. And uh, I also stood, I was the Australian Sex Party's lead Senate candidate in the 2016 federal election. I had no idea. I came, I came within a whisker of beating the Christian Democrats, Fred Niles' mob, because Fiona Patton, who yeah. unfortunately just lost her upper, south, uh, upper house seat in Victoria, 
She was the head of the um, uh, of the then Sex Party, which has changed its name to the Reason Party. Uh, and we met each other because a novel of mine called Soaring won the 1994 Erotic Novel of the Year Award given by the Eros Association, and that's how Fiona and Robbie <coughs> and Robbie Swan and I got together. Yeah, this is utterly fantastic. So if I was a tabloid headline writer, a uh, uh, Communist Party reject stands for the sex party. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fantastic. And I nearly, I nearly got in. Good on you. And, and what were the policies? Oh, uh, uh, I is mean, it the more policy- sex, or is it nothing to do with sex? Oh, it, it was to do with libertarian ideas, but also the right, you know, voluntary, voluntary euthanasia, anti-censorship, uh, same-sex marriage. Many of those have now come true. So we were at, we were ahead of a ta- our time, really. Yeah. Well, listen, what a loss to the nation that the, the, the voters didn't turn up in enough numbers. Your fourth choice on Five of My Life, it's always the uh, place, uh, and you have chosen uh, the pier at Middle Brighton beach now could you do us two favors please uh, ross could you uh, describe where it is and and what it is and then tell us the story behind that well i was brought up in the petite bourgeois suburb of east brighton the rest of brighton's quite posh and brighton beach uh this is victoria this is me- suburban melbourne yes yeah. the middle brighton pier ha- had a, a series of baths and then there was a long pier, and when I was, my idea of 14 or, when I was 14 or 15, would be to stay all night at the end of the pier and drink myself into insensibility and stumble home. And I remember about four in the morning I stumbled home and my father was waiting for me and he said, what are you celebrating, son? And I had no answer. I didn't know that I drank because I had to. I finished up scattering my mother's ashes at the end of that pier. We had a very fraught relationship. Unfortunately, she was a woman who would lie when telling the truth would do. But she had a baby before me that died when it was about four months old in my father's arms. And that had an absolutely catastrophic uh, effect upon their marriage and I never knew my parents when they were happy. But every now and again, my mother would point up to the sky and say, do you see the brightest star in all the skies? And I'd look up and she'd say, that's your brother Rodney. Oh, and mate. I'd think, fuck me. I mean, I realise I had a burning resentment against this poor dead child. And I now often think how terrible it must have been for my mother Edna, who went blind, to have that sort of paranoid mindset and to be wanting to take hundreds of tablets and to be trapped. And um, we put her in an Anglican home and they promised she'd never have to leave. Then they sold the bloody thing about five years later and as a blind person she'd finally got used to where she was. The Middle Brighton Pier is also next to the Middle Brighton Baths 
And I couldn't afford to go into the baths when I was young, but I swam out and I realised there was a gap bigger than a, a Sherman tank, so I used to swim out and go through it. So I knew it wasn't shark-proof, and I remember once I was in the middle of, middle of the bath swimming and a couple of blokes yelled out, Shark! And I almost died. And ever since then, I've never gone out very far in, in the sea. Although some of those after-darkers can come and get you by the knee. Tell me more about Edna. Well, Barry Humphreys was a good friend of... Uh, Barry's a great friend of mine. And he was very kind to Edna. And sometimes when he'd be performing in Melbourne, he'd invite her along and say, we've got a real Edna here. She's going to be so cross. <laughs> but Edna looked down upon my father because he uh, didn't read. He read comics. Well, he read the Sporting Globe on a Saturday night. We'd go up together. He was a very good cricketer, and, and so was I as a young... Uh, uh, I played for Victorian schoolboys. But shortly after that, I, I started drinking, and as I said, he changed in my mind. My mum, if I'd have stayed close to my mother... I, I would have got back on the booze. My experience in AA is anybody that's been sober even for a year, we have to do things we'd rather not do. And if I'd have had my druthers, I would have preferred my mother and I liked each other and loved each other, but we didn't. So I, I, the most I could deal with her was two sleeps. Right. The fact that Lyndall loathed it was also a very good sign. And... What was mum on the drink as well as the drugs? Or? No, mainly tablets. And, and, and sort of prescription things or...? or? Yes, mainly. Yes, always in the mouth, mm. as was I. I, I. I'm needle phobic, so I never shot up, which saved my life. But towards the end of my drinking, I'd be drinking all day and all night and taking something like 20 barbiturates a day. And my method of forging prescriptions would be to say, get a prescription for 50 second on an added naught. They must have known. <laughs> and then back to your mum and dad, because I'm sure this is going to link to your fifth choice and story. But is for you as a young drink addled male, your role models of what a functioning relationship was, uh, wasn't particularly out of the top drawer. You say you never... I didn't have a, a positive... Yeah. So they, they were miserable the whole time? Did they used to fight or they just ignore each other or what? Oh, they used to they used to fight a lot, but they didn't speak much. And there was always a sort of miasma of death sort of ho hovering over the house. And I learned to be sick when I was a kid. So rather than go to school... I drink. I, I learned to be an asthmatic, and I would drink out of that pink bottle that I realise now contained alcohol, ephedrine, and morphia, and go on the the trip in my bed with Snowy and Jumbo, my toy animals, uh, that lasted night after night. And instead of going to primary school, I'd stay home listening to Porsche Faces Life. And when a girl marries, the story of a woman who is loved and can remember. But you can point the bone at yourself. And I got that sick when I was about 13. I nearly died. And I went from being tremendously closeted because of the death of Rodney. They were tremendously 
concerned that I was going to die, as soon as I had that first drink at the age of 14, funnily enough, it's at the place up to now I had my last drink of alcohol, at Maisie's Hotel in South Yarra near Melbourne High School. I'd been to the doctor yet again, and it was about 11 in the morning, and I came in and I'd heard that a brandy, lime and soda was exotic, and I asked the drag queen who was the bar person at the time could I have a brandy lime and soda, please? And she and he said, yes, darling, but take off your school cap first. And my last <laughs> drink of alcohol was shortly after I'd got deported and I'd rang the Australian newspaper Collect to tell them this famous poet was coming home and they wrote this big article about me and I went back to show my school teachers at Melbourne High what a success I'd made of my life and they had a little alcove at Maisie's where they would drink after school because Maisie's is very close to Melbourne High. And before they came, I got back on the booze. I king hit one of these masters. Oh, dear. And I went to uh, a friend's place. If he hadn't have intervened, I probably would have necked myself. I'd been to an AA meeting the night before and someone had given me a number and my friend Ken Gooding rang this number and it turned out to be a bloke called Mick from Sandringham. He took me to an AA meeting at St Kilda, and there I met that man who never criticised me, Lee Parry. He took me and a German bloke every night for the first to meetings of AA, every night for the first three months. German bloke blew his head off with a double-barrel shotgun, and I tried to overdose. But then, as I said, I met Antique Harry... Even though that was my last drink of alcohol, I've only been sober since Australia Day 1970 when I stopped taking all the tablets as well, since mm. I've had nothing in my blood but blood, so to speak. Now, I know this is, gosh, I mean, there's so many uh, amazing, rich, shocking, interesting details in this, man. I just want to ask, the bloke you king hit, is he all right? Was he all right? Why the hell did you hit him? The master at the at the school. I don't know why. I mean, rage took over me. Right. As you said, you were dangerous, bad and mad. I mean, I came to realise in AA that I wasn't a bad person who needed to get good. I was a sick person who could take part in a process of recovery if I didn't pick up that first drink of alcohol one day at a time. And that still applies, Nigel. Yeah. Wow, my mate. I mean, just uh, inspirational. Uh, your fifth choice on Five of My Life, it's always the possession, and you have chosen, it's a possession that you have with you, you're holding it up now, it is a spangled walking stick. Could you please tell us a story behind that, Ross? Well, it's like a wand, and uh, Lyndall, darling Lyndall gave it to me shortly before, sh- shortly before she died, and I associate that with her. And also there's a tree outside our house in Madison Street that she planted that's slowly growing. And also this watch which she gave me. And, and uh, uh, the, the watch and the cane sort of came close to being 50-50. I use the cane wherever I go and it resembles a wand. But the watch she gave me, Barry Humphreys introduced me to Lyndall on November the 5th, 1974. And uh, she was then living with Clyde Packer, who was then the second richest person in Australia. 
Now, I didn't know Lyndall from a bar of soap. I didn't know she was Australia's leading model and a top actor. But we liked each other from the moment. We met at her first meeting of AA. And my words to her were, if only if you only knew what could happen to you if you stayed close to Alcoholics Anonymous, she would have died at the idea of uh, marrying me two years later. But when she married me exactly two years later, on November the 5th, 1976, she ditched Clyde Packer. And one of Barry Humphreys and my mutual friend, actually it was my sponsor, Lee Perry, said she went from diamonds to bald lollies. (laughs) She turned her back on the millions. Yeah, she wrote him a Dear John letter and uh, he left Australia for good. Now, there's a story about, you you told me this once, about her calling you up a year after being in AA. Would you mind sharing that? Oh, well, it used to be suggested that you put yourself on a sexual fast for a year. I couldn't have done that sort of through willpower, but it was like a piece of plasticine for my first year or so in sobriety. But Lyndall put herself on a sexual fast for a year, and as I said, she stopped drinking And when we met on November the 5th, 19, 1974. We, we became mates. Uh, we'd go to meetings together. Her nickname was Adequate from Arncliffe. She would talk about striving in her work for adequacy, not for perfection, and listening to Adequate from Arncliffe, coupled with James Thurber's motto, don't get it right, get it written, started me writing. That's how I began. But on November the 5th, 1976, Lyndall's one year of celibacy was over and she couldn't work out who to ask to break the fast. <laughs> and one of her friends said, what about that strange bloke you go to all those meetings with? <laughs> and I was tutoring and doing a PhD at the University of New South Wales and there were I didn't have a mo- didn't have a phone or anything. And there were three messages, ring Lindell, ring Lindell, ring Lindell. And I thought something terrible had happened. I thought something terrible had happened to Barry or anyway, she finally got through to me and she said, "Ross I'd like you to come over and make love to me tonight, but you must understand it's just once. <laughs> and I said, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that happened. But what Lyndall didn't know was my strongest and my weakest characteristic is persistence. And she told me later she'd never felt as pursued uh, by anyone. And uh, we, we got married exactly a year later, on November the 5th, Guy Fawkes Day, 1976. And then shortly afterwards, we moved to Brisbane, where I got a job at Griffith University, where, as you say, I eventually became a professor. And and 45 years married to Lyndall? 45 years together, yes. And uh, she got uh, a very aggressive ovarian cancer, and uh, the surgeon who operated on her, said you'll probably live three years, and she did. Mm. But I miss her more and more, not less and less. Yeah. What a gorgeous, gorgeous lady she is. Kate and I met her at your home. Yeah. Yeah, I've just, yeah. What an angel. I mean, and also, for all your bad luck in your life, you had some good luck. Oh, enormous. Because you met Lyndall. Yeah. No, I'm very, very lucky. Broken Hill Jack once said to me, do you know the definition of a fortunate person, laddie? 
And I said, no. He said, a person who thinks they're fortunate. And I'm very fortunate. And I can count my blessings one by one. It, it just is. It's been an utter joy for me hearing you talk about your choices. But there is one extra question that yes. I ask all my guests. And I, God, I have no idea what you're going to say, which is, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next and why? Caroline Overington, the uh, book's editor of uh, The Weekend Australian, who's a fascinating human being who's committed to books, who reviews self-published books, which I'm pleased to say. Ross Fitzgerald, you are an inspiration, mate. You really are. Thank you for coming on Five My Life and sharing your choices and your stories. It's a pleasure, Nigel. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.